look at the book of Amos, Amos chapter 3. We'll just be in here for a little bit here. Amos chapter 3. We've been talking about a, a culture, a culture that is falling apart. We've been talking about different social sins, the injustice that was going on in Israel in all sorts of uh, different uh, ways and, and revealing itself in different manifestations. It was a corrupt society, but it was a prosperous society. So it was extremely evil. There was a lot of evil. There was a lot of sin that was taking place. And yet financially, many people, except for a lot of poor people, many people were doing okay. There was also a lot of religion. So in many ways, people were going to church, so to speak. They were still attending religious services. The people in the north had their own religious sanctuaries that they would uh, go to, but they were religious. And so there was this decadent society of evil, and there was uh, prosperity going on at the same time. And the pull was toward the world. So people are in the society and they're being pulled to do that which is wrong. They're being pulled towards sin. So there's a lot of people going, well, this religion stuff, it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay for certain people. But there's also this extreme pull towards sin and wickedness and all of the wrong things that were going on in society. And so people were saying we can do both. Hey, we can get drunk and have party time, and then we can go and celebrate at church. We can do both things. We can live just like the world. We can live like the world, and yet we can also be extremely religious. And there's a temptation there. I can follow the Lord. I can be religious, and yet I can do whatever I want. Spurgeon said that it's in these kind of times, in these dark days, where there is so much temptation and there is such a pull toward sin. He said that the, the scriptures tell us that in these times we must adhere to the strictest holiness. In other words, what he was saying was this. The darker the times get in our land, the more holy we as Christians become. That instead of saying, well, it's a sign of the times, this is the way it is, it's easy to kind of get sucked into sin, so let's just go with the flow. After all, everybody's kind of doing it. We don't even really know any godly people. I was asking the men's group, we were, we were talking about this a, a number of weeks ago, and the question was raised, how many godly old men do you know? And the question was this, not, not, not just men who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian and I go to church. 
Now, we didn't mean any offense by this, but we we're just trying to figure out, okay, what age are we talking about? Because 50 is old to some people, but we're not talking about 50-year-olds. We, we said 70 and over. And even in our day and age, 70, there's lots of people that don't seem that old at 70 anymore. But let's just take that as a number. How many men, and because we were talking about this at men's group, how many men do you know that are not just churchgoers, but are in the Word of God, that are following after the strictest of holiness in these dark times? Now listen, when we talk about the strictest of holiness, some of us, this won't make any sense, but uh, some of us think of holiness as certain haircuts. So when we're talking about a person who is holy, we're talking about somebody, man, they've got their hair cut above their collar. And uh, they wear uh, certain types of clothing. They never watch TV. Um, they, they, they just don't do anything that would, that would smack of, of um, being against the traditions of the church. Listen, if that's your view of holiness, that's, that's not the right view of holiness, and that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the strictest of holiness. We're, listen, you can be a, an extremely godly man. Listen, you can be an extremely godly man and have a ponytail. We're not talking about haircuts here. I highly doubt, listen, I highly doubt that Jesus had a crew cut in a three-piece suit. That's not what we mean. Clean-shaven, hair, all that kind of stuff. That is not holiness. And we're not talking about, well, yes, he can be godly, but wink, wink, he really should get a, he should get a haircut. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the strictest of holiness where a person not only has a ponytail as a man, but it's okay. We talked last week in Amos about the Nazarite vow. And there's different people in Scripture that we can identify who looked like Nazarites or took a Nazarite vow. And during this time, one of the things that they could not do, listen, according to the Lord, was they could not cut their hair. So you look at different uh, men in the Bible, it doesn't mean that they all had the same haircut. In fact, some of the most godly consecrated men had longer hair. They had to actually wind it up, it was so long. So whenever we're talking about holiness and we have these images of holiness in our mind, that's not what we're talking about. The most holy man, the most holy man who ever lived, the most righteous man who ever lived, listen, you cannot get past this holiness. There is no higher bar of holiness. There's no higher level of excellence than our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the Holy One of Israel. If there ever was a holy person, 
who was the most holy of holy. So whatever you have in your mind, saints, or you have haircuts, or you have uh, certain levels of tradition in your mind of holiness, we need to put all of that aside and think about what the Lord says is holy. Be holy, the Bible says, for I am holy. Well, what is holiness? Holiness is personified by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is holy. So whatever we're talking about here, about holiness, we are talking about being like Jesus. That's all we're talking about. And so in the darkest of times, what we are saying is this, that as the world is pulling us, our heart needs to be, as Christians, God, in this dark season of this nation, God, with all of the siren calls that are happening, God, with all of the alluring calls to the world, in the middle of this dark time, like it was so dark in Amos's day in the 8th century B.C., God, would you help me not to just kind of get through, but God, in this dark season of our nation, in the church, and it is a dark season in the church of America today. It's a dark season. God, would you help me? Would you empower me to be more like Jesus than ever before? God, would you, instead of just saying, I'm going to, because the whole culture is going along this way, God, I'm going to just continue to go along with the flow of culture. God, would you help me to turn my face against the culture and whatever they're teaching and all the humanism and the, the, the preaching of atheism and everything else, sexual promiscuity and, and um, uh, music that is, uh, is defying to you, not the actual music, but the lyrics that are going forward, all of these different things. Lord, help me. Lord, help me to be holy. Help me. And if all you hear this morning is, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do that, to be holy, listen, you will never be holy until your heart is right. Holiness starts with the heart. It starts with us coming before the Lord and saying to him in consecration like a Nazarite, Lord, I'm consecrating myself to you for your glory. Lord, I want my heart, as we were talking about earlier, my heart is running after you. Lord Jesus, make me run after you. If you don't have that kind of heart this morning, and, and there's varying degrees of that as God gives us grace, but if you don't have that and you've never had any desire to go after the things of God, then trying to be holy will be a horrible experience for you. The message will be heard in terms of got to do this, got to do that. But if your heart is opened up to the things of God, listen, Christians can survive in the darkest of cultures because our Christianity is not based on what is going on all around us. Our Christianity is based upon the power of the Holy Spirit who is more powerful than any influence in this world. 
Jesus said this. Jesus said, take cheer. I have overcome the what? I've overcome the world. So we live in Amos' day. We live in this day. And we say, Lord, help us, as Spurgeon rightly said. Help us, Lord, to attend to the strictest of holiness. And God is pleading with his people. He's saying, I, I love you. I want you to come back to me. I don't want you to continue on in the path that you are going. But he says to us in chapter 3, he talks here a lot about destruction and judgment, the complete devastation caused by judgment. Look me at, with me at uh, Amos chapter 3. He says this, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. God is saying, I brought you up. I had a special call on your life. It was, it was me who raised you up as a nation. It wasn't because of anything that was particularly wonderful about you. But it was because of my grace on your life. He's saying, I'm the one who did that. I'm the one who called you out of darkness. I'm the one who released you from your chains of slavery. We can see this theme even in the Christian life of being in bondage. And God says, I have a special love for those whom I call. Listen, God loves the whole world. For God so loved the world. But he has a special love. He has a special call on those whom he has chosen on the elect. And so he is saying here to a nation, his elect people, not elect unto salvation, but elect as a people, he's saying to them, I called you out of Egypt. It was me who did this. It was me who brought you out of the depths of darkness. Remember back hundreds of years ago when you were slaves in the land of Egypt? God is saying, it was me who brought you out, and yet you have turned your back on me. And as a result of turning your back on me, there's going to be complete devastation. There's going to be complete judgment. But my call has been upon you. Look with me in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. So God is saying to them, this is, he's talking here to the whole family when he says this is the word of God for the whole family, even though the prophecy is going to be primarily for Israel. He's also speaking here to Judah. So he's speaking here to both the northern kingdom and he's also talking to the southern kingdom because they were brought out as a whole, 12 tribes from the land of Egypt. He says this in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's saying, Israel, I've taken you out of bondage. I've taken you out of the darkness and I'm setting you aside so that you can be a holy and a righteous people. That's the purpose of this. It's not just I'm trying to build a nice economy here. 
but I'm taking you out of this situation in order to set you apart unto myself so that you might be a holy people, a holy nation. Verse 6, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you flip over there to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 6, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. So he's elected you as a people. And by the way, there is no better illustration of our own personal election unto salvation than the election of Israel. What did Israel do to be picked? Was it because they were stronger? Was it because they were more beautiful? Was it because they had more money that God said, you know what, I need a nation on earth uh, to be my nation, to be my special people. And so he's looking out over the globe and he goes, no, not them. And then he goes, well, they're really willing. Israel would like to be my people. They're really willing and they have their hands raised. They have their hand raised to be my nation. And so I'm going I'm to go ahead and pick them as a student picks somebody in a classroom. God's saying, I want, I want a nation to be mine. Who wants to be my nation? And everyone's raising their hands and going, pick me, pick me. And God says, okay, Israel, I pick you. No, no, that's not why he picked them. It wasn't because they were raising their hands. He says this in verse 6, So I chose you to be a, a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I could have picked any nation is what he's saying. This is the sovereign election of God. I could have picked this nation. I could have waited on and picked America if I wanted to. I, I could have picked uh, Ghana. I could have picked any nation, China. But I picked you. And he's saying I picked you not because of what you did, not because of who you are, not because of the color of your skin, not because of your gender, not because of your money, not because of your social status. I didn't pick you for any of those reasons. In fact, he tells us that in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. So he says, the reason I, I chose you was not because you were powerful and strong, in fact, when I looked at you, you were slaves and uh, you were weak. And if you go back even before that, you go back to the very beginning with Abraham. I'm looking at Abraham and he's a pagan. That's it. It's not because he's powerful and I'm thinking of Isaac and Jacob and the different patriarchs that come after him. It's not because you, you were big or you had this Godward sense to you. You were seeking after me. No, no. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. 
So here's his answer. Why, why have I chosen you, Israel, out of all the nations of the world? One reason, I loved you. That's it. It's not for any other reason that God says, I chose Israel out of the rest of the nations of the world, but it's simply I looked upon you with great affection and with great love. And it's not because of anything in you that I have loved you, but it's because of the nature of God. I have simply set my love upon you because I love you. And there's echoes of that. In our own salvation, we say, God, why do you love us? Why have you drawn yourself to, to, to why, have you, why have you brought us to yourself? Why have you called us in? Is it because of our, of our standing before you? Is it because we loved you and therefore you loved us? And God says, no, no, no. I didn't call you to myself because you were saying, pick me. I called you to myself because I loved you. I just love you. And God's saying it just flows from my nature. That's who I am. And it's because I have decided to set my love upon you. If you go over to Psalm chapter 147, Psalm chapter 147, verse 19, Psalm 147, Psalm chapter 147. Go back just a verse or so to verse 18. Someone, 47 verse 18. He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Now, notice what he does here. This is, this is special. This is the love of God. It says this, he declares his word to who? To Jacob and his statutes and rules to who? To Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So this is why God is saying, I'm judging this nation for inhumanity, for the general revelation of God that comes down to all of the nations. Everybody knows you shouldn't steal. Everybody knows that you shouldn't kill. But when I come to Israel... And God says, I'm about to pour out judgment upon you, O Israel. It's not just because of your defying of the general rules of humanity, but it's because you have defied my word. I have taken you out from all of the nations of the world because I've set my love upon you. I loved you because I loved you. And I took you out of the nations of the world, and I gave you my specific law, I gave you my specific word, and yet, O Israel, O family of God, you have rejected my law. Instead of resisting and being a holy people like I called you to be holy, instead of being holy, you have run with the other countries. You have run with the crowd. You have disobeyed me. Now, in closing, if you go back to Amos 3, he says this, You only have I known, same idea of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Then God begins to answer a number of rhetorical questions. We know the answer. He asks a bunch of questions here with obvious answers. 
He says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Can you take a walk with someone unless you've agreed to take a walk with someone? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap in it? No. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No. It's all obvious questions here with obvious answers. If destruction comes to a city, the Lord is behind it. Now notice verse 7 here. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now he is saying this. Israel, I have set my love on you. I have called you out of all of the nations of the earth to be a special people. And the way that you're to be special is not by treating people with injustice and inhumanity, not by overburdening the stranger, not by overfining people, not by getting drunk on fines if you have fined people who cannot afford it. But I have called you to be holy from the heart. And yet you have not been holy. You have not pursued God. And so I have revealed to my prophets and to this prophet in particular, Amos, that destruction is coming. There is a sense with the prophets, they know what's going on. They're the ones that carry the burden in fact, Amos, the word Amos literally means burden bearer. He's, he's looking around. He's looking at all these people who are called by God to be holy and to be righteous from the heart. They're very religious, very religious people. But he's called them to be holy. And Amos is carrying this burden. And he's looking out and it's the prophets who have a sense of what's going on. They're going, this isn't good. The Lord has his face against us. There's something wrong here because we can't continue on like this. We can't continue to say, we're Christians, we're really Christians, and yet we love the world at the same time. We can't do both. We can't say, we love God and we love the world. And God is saying, it's to my prophets. It's to my prophets that I reveal this. They're the ones who see this. They're the ones who carry the burden. Are you ready for two more texts? And I promise we're done. Okay, Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11, verse 29. So, God says here, it's the secrets of what are going on, the devastation that is coming to the prophets. Moses is crying out here, and he says, verse 29, But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Wouldn't that be awesome? If it wasn't just a specific few people who had the burden of the Lord, who saw what was going on and saying, 
heads up, everyone, something is really wrong in our country. Something's really wrong here. And there's lots of people going, oh, no, no, we're fine. We're still pretty protected. We have a comfortable life. Yeah, milk is up a little bit, but we're getting by. We're paying the mortgage. We're doing everything okay. And it's the prophets who go, no, 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 no. Something is wrong here. They have the, the burden that comes from the Lord. And Moses is saying, wouldn't that be awesome if, if all of God's people felt that way? Wouldn't it be something if it wasn't just a select few number of people who had this burden and could sense the things that were happening from the Lord? So he says, wouldn't it be great if all of the Lord's people were prophets? Oh, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Can you imagine if every person who was a believer had the spirit of God? That's what he's saying here. That desire is completely fulfilled in the New Testament. Go to one more verse here, and that is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2. Wouldn't that be great if everybody had the Spirit? 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9. Is this. Now, see if this sounds familiar. But you are a chosen race. Now, who's Peter talking here to? He's talking to all believers. He's not just talking here to ethnic Israel, but he's talking to all believers here. And he's saying this You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light, his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen, everybody who comes to God in repentance and faith has the Holy Spirit. Every person. Every person who has been born again has been baptized in the Spirit and regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian, there's not one without, uh, without the Spirit. There's not one exception. And so as we are listening to God, we are saying we are not just a people ethnically called by God from outside, but every Christian is called from within so that it's no longer, oh, God, we hear your word, we hear what you're saying, but we really don't want to do it. But the answer is the church that every person who has the Spirit says, God, I want to be holy because you've not just given me a word externally from the outside, but, Lord, you have applied that word internally to my heart so that I hear your voice and I want to be holy, and I want to follow after you, even though I still struggle, I want it. So the Christian is a struggling person. There is, there is the struggle with the flesh. There is the struggle with sin. But a person who is a Christian is a person who has the Spirit and has joined this holy nation, this precious brotherhood of saints, who says to God, we hear your voice and we desire to obey. We desire to obey. And we got to stop there. If you'd stand with me. Um, 
There's much more to say. We're going to be in Amos much longer than we anticipated. But we don't want to rush through this. And, uh, you know, these, these books, like I said, I had no clue how, how precious they are. I mean, I knew they were the Word of God and precious, but you begin and you look at this and you're going, oh, my Lord, how applicable, how wonderful, how relevant. Your Word is so relevant. We're irrelevant. You're relevant. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray. I pray that we would hear your voice, that we would hear, for I have called you out of darkness. And I have called you into my marvelous light so that you might be a holy people. Lord, I, I, I would ask today that in our church you would work this work of holiness. That in the midst of the darkness, as we started out by talking about, in the midst of the darkness, instead of becoming a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more like the world, that we would become less like the world and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you put a holy and righteous fear in our hearts of God, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We ask you that you would do this as we worship our Lord and Savior, the truly Holy One. For his sake we pray. Amen. We could ask the worship team to close with our song.